Okay, talk about a hard act to follow. Right? Those kids are awesome. I love that. All right, great job, kids. And uh, for that, your reward is that you guys are dismissed. So elementary kids, you guys are out today. Uh, junior high and high school youth group, uh, Pastor Chris said you guys were begging to stay in. So you get to uh, stay in with us this morning and, uh, and just hear, uh, hear the word that the Lord has to encourage us all. And, uh, you know, welcome everybody. Certainly, if you're visiting here today, we are awfully glad uh, that you're here visiting with us. We're, we're glad to see you. Um, if you're not visiting and you're here with us every week, we like you guys too, and we're glad that you're here. And uh, for, for all of those who are already traveling, we're glad that you're joining us online and uh, tuning in with us. Um, it is certainly a blessing to be together and to celebrate Christmas, even if it seems so early, doesn't it? I mean, Christmas is nearly still a week away, but this is the last Sunday before Christmas, and by next Sunday, Christmas will be uh, just a memory. So we're blessed to be together and to celebrate, um, you know, uh, some good news. And we're going to find that good news this morning uh, in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 2. And as you're turning there, let's just pray and ask the Lord as we do every week that he would really bless uh, our time in the Word today. So Father, we thank you so much uh, for today. Lord, we thank you for this place that you have provided, Lord, and this time that you have appointed for us to be here together and to be ministered to by your Spirit. Father, we just pray for open hearts to receive whatever it is that you would speak to each one of us today, Lord, just to take time in the midst of all of the busyness, Lord, and just to pause and to sit quietly at your feet, Lord, to have you just settle our hearts and speak to us, Lord, um, about the realities of heaven, Lord, about the realities of the coming of your son, Jesus. And so um, we pray for hearts to hear that this morning, and we ask these things, Lord, in his precious name, amen. Amen. So I didn't mention, but if you are here and you don't have a Bible, you might want to have one. We're going to be going through the first 14 verses of the gospel according to Luke. So if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of the men will bring one um, to you. As we get started, you know, kind of at the risk. Okay, so a couple Bibles up here in the, in the front. Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Rick. So at the risk of overstating the obvious, which I know you're saying, well, Bill, that's kind of what you specialize in up there, but... At the risk of overstating the obvious, suffice it to say that we live in a time when the news, for the most part, is just not good, right? So from the, from the nightly network news cycle to all the commentators on the cable channels to the, the news feeds that seem to flood our Facebook when we were just looking for a funny meme in the middle of the afternoon, but it, it sometimes just seems like headline after headline of bad news, right? Whether we're talking locally or regionally or nationally, internationally, whether we're talking, you know, socially or politically or economically, right? You get the idea. It's just bad news. And yet, if, if what we've been studying in this past year, right, as we've looked at the Revelation, as we've been hearing from Pastor Peter, you know, if they've taught us anything, it's that this really shouldn't be at all surprising to us. You know, sometimes I think it's, it's well said that watching the news helps us understand what's happening, but reading the Bible helps us understand why it's happening. 
And the Bible tells us that all of this is happening simply because we live in a world which is not what our creator created it to be. We live in a world now that's marred by man's sin and that's been plunged into this chaos. And we live each and every day dealing with the effects of those things that are so evident all around us. But Christmas, right? In light of all of that, we have Christmas. And Christmas is a game changer. Because Christmas, remember, is nothing less than a divine rescue. It's God's arrival into the human condition, right? God's arrival into the human story in a new way to finally set things right. Because Christmas, in its very essence, when we sort of strip everything back and boil it down and break it down just to its essential elements, Christmas is one thing, and it's one thing only, right? As Susie's fourth graders know, it's Christ Mass, right? Christmas is God with us. It's Emmanuel. It's the birth of the Savior Jesus. And that provides us with some good news, right? With the good news. Good news this Christmas. And it actually provides us with what is undeniably the best news in all of human history. And it came, of course, 2,000 years ago, came to the Jewish people who were also living in a time mostly of bad news. And they were living in some strangely similar circumstances as what we have today. Luke records for us in the, in the first few verses, they were living in the midst of a very dark situation. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 2 where he records that it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place when Quirinus was governing Syria. So the days into which Jesus was born, right? These are the final days of the BC calendar. They were dark days in the ancient world, and they were especially dark days for God's people, the Jews, right? These were the days when the Roman Empire dominated the known world, including the land of Israel. And while it did bring order and it did bring some peace to the chaos and the wars and the really the moral decay of the disintegrating ancient Greek culture, all of that that Rome brought came at a great cost because the Roman Caesars demanded absolute authority over their entire empires. So Rome had replaced this failing government of Greece with even more government of Rome. And they tightened their grip on all of their subjects, including occupied Israel and the Jewish people, calling for them here, as we see, for all the world to be registered, right? It was a census, but it wasn't simply a census for population purposes. It was so that Rome could more efficiently and could more effectively tax each and every person in the Roman Empire. See, I told you the news wasn't good, right, even back then. And so it says in verse 3 
that all went to be registered, everyone to his own city or the cities of their ancestry. Verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so we meet Mary and Joseph, right? The earthly parents of the Messiah, Jesus, as we see them brought here divinely to Bethlehem, where Jesus would very soon be born. Even as here the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, he was unknowingly helping to fulfill a very prominent biblical prophecy spoken over 700 years before by the Lord to the Jews through the prophet Micah, uh, placing the exact place where the Messiah would be born. Right? In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So Caesar Augustus, he may have been the one ruling from Rome, but once again we're reminded it was God who was in charge was God who was ruling in heaven. And though Bethlehem, for a host of reasons, was an unlikely place for the Savior to be born, it was God's place. Bethlehem means house of bread. And so it was a very fitting, it was the ideal birthplace for Jesus, who would be, of course, the bread of life. And so it says in verse 6, And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, and she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. So, put a star by verses 6 and 7, because there it is. Interestingly, Luke is the only author of all four authors of the different gospel accounts who details for us in any way the actual birth of the Lord Jesus, and this is all the detail that he gives. And I think one of the most striking things about Luke's narrative is just how very simple it is, especially when we contrast that to how very monumental these events are that he's describing. This is literally what we just read in verses 6 and 7. This is literally the biggest thing to have ever happened on planet Earth. This is literally God himself stepping into the pages of human history as a human. right? The eternally begotten Son of God taking on human flesh to dwell among us and to live as one of us and to bring to us this hope that we didn't have. And yet we see his coming was completely without any human fanfare or even any human recognition that into this dark situation, this unknowing world had unknowingly just witnessed this very humble incarnation. And I think that Luke's very simple treatment of the birth of Jesus, it really reflects the very simple way in which he came. 
You know, today, of course, with the media and social media, so often we see even very small events are so overinflated and overhyped and overdescribed that they seem to be way more important than they actually are. And yet here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke presents this most amazing event in such a relatively unamazing language. And yet, this is nothing less than the birth announcement, right? This is the birth announcement sent out by heaven, which as we're gonna see, really communicates to us from a heavenly perspective the great significance of the birth of Jesus. And yet, it's these understated way, these very few words that Luke gives us, understand, this is where we get most all that we think we know about that first Christmas mangers and stables and sheep and donkeys and this young mother and this baby wrapped in rags, right? And, a, and of a world that's so consumed with itself that it had no time, right? It had no room as its creator stepped into creation to redeem it. I love what one author wrote. He said, that there was no room in the inn was symbolic of what was to happen to Jesus. The only place where there was room for him was on a cross. And I just bring that up as we get started this morning because I think it's at least worth a moment to stop and consider maybe that is a perfect picture of where some of our lives or some of our hearts are even this morning. You know, maybe you're here or you're listening and you perhaps don't yet know Jesus in that personal and intimate way. Maybe even possibly for some of us, you do know Jesus and yet how easily our hearts can become so crowded out that there's very little room for him. And remember when we went through the book of Revelation, when Jesus spoke these very familiar words in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, Remember that he spoke these words to the church when he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. So if that's you this morning, I simply want to say take heart right, and open your heart because I promise you there is some very good news waiting for you just on the other side of that door. And we're going to see next as Luke continues that this good news comes first to the, the most unlikely, actually the most unlikely group of people that we would expect because on that night, so even as Jesus was being born in this stable or this barn right in Bethlehem, it says in verse 8, now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, before we see what happened here with the shepherds, there's something that you need to know about these shepherds, and that is that they were the lowest of the low on the scale of society. 
They weren't even able to worship God with the other Jews. Not only did their work keep them away from the temple and from the synagogue, but it caused them to be ceremonially unclean, right? They couldn't even participate in the cleansing rituals that were necessary for them to worship. So they were outcasts, considered constantly dirty, considered holy untrustworthy. Shepherds had a reputation. If they came through your neighborhood, stuff just kind of tended to start to disappear a little bit. And one historian wrote, as a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. More regrettable was their habit of confusing mine with thine as they moved through the country. So shepherds Understand, shepherds weren't even allowed to give testimony in a court of law. That's how dubious their character was considered because they couldn't be trusted to tell the truth. And yet, we're going to see, it's this group of untrustworthy, outcast shepherds who were about to be entrusted with the greatest truth mankind had ever been given. It didn't come to the priests. It didn't come to the other Jewish religious leaders. It didn't come to the kings or to the political rulers. But it came to those who were outcast and those who were downtrodden and those who were rejected by everyone else. And they are so perfectly representative, aren't they, of precisely the kind of people who we'll see in the gospel accounts would most enthusiastically embrace Jesus during his public ministry. Those very same kind of people who have embraced him down throughout all of the thousands of years since that time, and maybe like so many of us who are here even in this room, even this morning. So it was to these men, right out there in the field at night, outside of Bethlehem, in the dark, it says in verse 9, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Now we can so easily just sort of read so quickly by something like this, but I want us to just try to imagine this scene. Uh, understand, if you're going to come and send an angel down in order to announce the birth, right, to be the bearer of this birth announcement, if you're going to manifest the glory of God and manifest the glory of this angelic heavenly messenger, you're going to want the best background that you can get for it, right? Right? So, of course, the darkness of the night was the perfect background for the glory of this angel to be seen in just the same way that the darkness of the sin that the entire world was in at that time, right? The darkness that the whole world has been in since the fall of man is the perfect backdrop for the very thing that the angel's about to announce. So in a very real way, the earthly scene matches the spiritual reality. Because here in the midst of this dark situation, right, to make this announcement of this humble incarnation, these shepherds are going to be the first to witness what will be a glorious proclamation. And Luke tells us that they were understandably afraid out there that night. Verse 10, then the angel said to them, uh, 
do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So first, there was one heavenly messenger. Then by the end of it, he's joined with this whole host, right? A multitude of even more heavenly messengers. Literally, we could say there were an army of angels, and they're all here announcing the birth of the Savior that's come from heaven. They're declaring just this chorus of praise of him and this chorus of praise to him. And the situation was so awesome, they didn't even have time to take a group photo. Right, so the only photo we have is just this one that was on the Instagram page of the first angel. Now, understand this. Understand that biblically and historically, for the first time, literally in centuries, the glory of God had just returned to the earth. So, so try to even imagine this scene as it played out there in the dark of the night sky above this field to the amazement of these outcast shepherds. You can bet that as awesome as we can even imagine that it was, I have no doubt that it was even awesomer than that. Way more awesomer, right? No doubt these men had heard about the appearance of angels throughout the record of the Old Testament. But understand, the last of the prophets had been silent at this point for how long? 400 years. They hadn't heard from God in 400 years. Certainly there had been no angel that appeared except very recently when Gabriel appeared privately to Zacharias in the temple. Right, to announce the birth of John the Baptist, and then appeared privately again to Mary to announce that she was miraculously pregnant with Jesus. But those were both private. Right Now here, all of the heavens were completely illuminated, and a whole host of these majestic heavenly beings were visible to these fearful men. And you compare that with that very humble setting of Jesus being born just in the town next door. Right? Laid there in a manger, which literally is a feeding trough. So they cleared out the food that the animals were eating. They laid Jesus in there. And this probably wasn't even a proper stable. right? It was very possibly a cave. Or it was also possibly kind of a lean-to that was set up out in the courtyard of where the inn would have been where the, the animals of the travelers would stay for the night. That's what Jesus was born into. And we compare that situation to what was happening out here in the field, in the dark, just the sheer excitement of heaven that we see here can hardly be contained. And one of the things that I love when we read and when we just stop and we take a moment is just how we're reminded of how excited heaven is 
over this birth. Clearly how excited heaven was in order to be able to offer mankind a savior. And just the excitement that so clearly comes forth because of that reality. So whatever people might think, right, whatever people might say today of the birth of the Savior, understand heaven is still completely excited about the birth of Jesus. Because these angels understood that in giving us a Savior, that heaven was giving something priceless to us. And heaven was excited about being able to do that. This was the Messiah, the Christ, of whom it was told to his father Joseph, again, privately by another visit from another angelic messenger. In Matthew 1.21, he was told that his wife Mary, she would bring, uh, bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So the Savior at last had been born. And that is precisely, it was precisely and it still is exactly the great need of all mankind. We don't need yet another Caesar. We don't need a reformer. We don't need a captain. We need a savior to save us from our sins, and he had just arrived. Now those are some good tidings, right? That's good news. That's the best news, and that's the gospel. And literally, bring good tidings means to preach the gospel. Our English word gospel is just a slightly changed form of an old Anglo-Saxon word, good spell, which means Good tidings. And the good tidings is God's glorious message about his blessed son Jesus. The good tidings is John 3:16, right? It's the reality that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. And can we all agree that that is good news? Right? In Proverbs 25, Solomon tells us that as cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a foreign country. And the gospel is what provides that refreshment that our weary souls need. Because notice what the angel tells us there in verse 14. Notice what he tells us that the gospel provides. It provides peace. Right. So the birth of Jesus brought glory to God in the highest and it provided peace on earth for men. Now, we, we know that this does, doesn't simply mean peace from war or from strife or from conflict or peace in our daily circumstances. Because to the Jewish mind, the concept of peace, right, or of what they call shalom, it means so much more than just kind of a break in the daily battles of our lives. It means well-being and it means health and prosperity, security, soundness, and completeness. It has much more to do with our, our inner person than it does our outer circumstances. 
Right? Life was difficult at that time, just as it is still difficult today. Taxes were high. Unemployment was high. Morals were slipping lower and lower. The military state had completely seized control. And in the midst of all of that, neither Greek philosophy nor Roman law, not even Jewish religion, could meet the deep need of the hearts of individuals, and that is to be connected or really to be reconnected to our Creator. The deep need of our souls is to be reconciled to God. And so God sent his son to do that. In Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that if when we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Because that is what peace is. That's true shalom. That's the peace that comes with knowing that whatever might be going on in the world or whatever it is that's going on in my individual life, all of the ups and downs right, of my life personally or of things that are going on nationally or internationally, it's that peace of knowing that in the midst of all of it, I am right with God. So Jesus offers us this peace with God. And so here Jesus, for the first time, was providing us with the real possibility of being at peace with God, of being reconciled to God. And that all came, of course, through his life and his sacrifice later on the cross. Paul said in Romans 5.1 that therefore having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus removed that barrier of our sins that was separating us from God. And that's the good news of Christmas. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, just think about the possibility of being at peace with God. Just think about that, that you can have peace with God, and that that was actually made possible for you more than 2,000 years ago. And there is no need to live even one more day at war with God. No need to live apart from God, from that relationship with him. And who in their right mind today, right, with all of the problems that are going on across the landscape, all the things that we face on a daily basis, or just living our lives in the course of this world and as these pilgrims that are traveling through this world, who in their right mind would want to be at war with God on top of all of that other stuff, no thank you, right? I've already been there. I've already done that. And I can tell you what you already know, it is exhausting, isn't it? To be at war with God is exhausting morally, it's exhausting emotionally, it's exhausting mentally and physically, but to be at peace with God that is a priceless thing. And Jesus came into this world for that one reason, to make that finally available to us. But not only does he offer us peace with God, but he also provides us with what? With the peace of God. Jesus offers us the peace of God. Now, peace with God 
right, is this spiritual peace. Again, it's that peace of knowing that I'm right with him and that I have that relationship with him. That's peace with God. But the peace of God is that peace that God provides to our hearts and to our minds and to our spirit and to that inner person because of that relationship that we're in with him. It's the, it's the peace and it's the freedom from all of those worries that come with knowing that not only are we finally right with him, but knowing now that we are no longer in this world alone in life. We're no longer left trying to navigate life on our own, but now we're living life under the protection and at the direction of this loving Heavenly Father who loves us so far beyond description and so beyond our comprehension. Right? Knowing that He is for us, knowing that He is always actively present with us. So it's our peace with God that produces in us the peace of God. And only Jesus can provide that to us. Only he can give that to us. And he said to his disciples on the evening of his death, up in the upper room in John chapter 14, he said this. He said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be Afraid, And then later in John chapter 16, he says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So Jesus promised us where it is that we can finally find peace in this world. And he declared that it's found only in him. Right? That it's his peace that he's the lone source of true peace in this world. And why is it that Jesus can offer us this peace that the world can't? Right, The world with all together, all of its resources and all of its power cannot even begin to offer us the hope of this peace. And the reason that Jesus is able to do it is because in order for us to know true peace, the source of our peace has to be greater than all of those things in life that threaten to rob us of our peace. And Jesus is the only thing greater. He is the greater one. And that bumper sticker, right, it's certainly true, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. It's a priceless thing in this world. A person can own the whole world or possess all the power in the world, but if he or she doesn't have peace, then they are without the capacity to enjoy not only all the things that they own, but they can't actually enjoy anything that they own. Because the man or woman who enjoys peace in life is far richer than the richest man or woman in this world that has no peace. Because... It's the peace that's produced in our lives by the gospel that then produces joy in our hearts. So Jesus offers us peace with God. He offers us the peace of God. And Jesus also offers us joy. And isn't that just what the first angel promised the shepherds there in verse 10? 
the angel said, I bring you tidings of great joy, right? The good news of great joy. And once again, joy is a priceless commodity in the world today. Understand, there is a huge difference between what the world calls happiness and what the Bible speaks of as joy. Joy is something deeper. It's something that is so much, it's weightier than happiness. Happiness, the way that the world experiences it and the way that the world defines it, happiness is almost entirely based upon our circumstances, right? When my circumstances are good, I'm happy. When my circumstances are not good, I'm unhappy. So happiness is a wonderful thing, but it's constantly coming and going, right? It's constantly ebbing and flowing in our lives depending on the tide of our circumstances. I can be super happy if I get an unexpected check for $1,000 until I open the next envelope or I open the next email and I get an unexpected bill for $1,200, right? Then I'm instantly unhappy because my happiness was totally tied to all those things I thought I was going to buy with my extra $1,000. So my happiness just flew away because it fluctuates with the circumstances of our lives. And in contrast, joy is something that comes only from God. Joy, true biblical joy, has its source only in God because the Bible tells us it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. So Jesus offers us joy from the Holy Spirit of God. The book of Galatians, of course, lists the fruit of the Spirit, and it tells us the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, all the rest of them, right? Paul also wrote again about this when he wrote to the church of Thessalonica. He said that you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So understand, Paul just said we can have joy even in much affliction because the source of that joy are those blessings that God brings into our life. The promises that God provides for our life and those things never change. See, our joy as Christians is deep and it's enduring because God himself is the, the source and he's the, the, the basis of those things. The promises of God, the blessings of God, all of those things lie far beyond the reach of life's circumstances. Those things can never be changed. They will never be diminished by anything that's happening to us in our life. No matter how terrible it is. For instance, the Bible describes the joy of our salvation. And there is no circumstance in life that can change the fact that we are saved and that can touch that deep joy. 
that joy lies beyond the reach of anything that we're ever gonna face in our lives. Then there's the joy of our sins being forgiven, the joy of this relationship we have with God, the joy of understanding that we are new creations in Christ, the joy of being now filled with the Holy Spirit, right? the joy of the confidence in the knowledge that one day at the end of all of this, we are going to be in heaven for all of eternity. And all of these things are a constant and an unchanging source of joy within our lives because all of them, again, they lie firmly beyond the reach of the circumstances or trials that we might be going through. Now that's good news. Amen? For so many, Christmas right, becomes a day with, filled with what they think is great joy, only to be followed the next day by great depression and discouragement because the joy of their festivities all of a sudden now is replaced with a sink full of dirty dishes, right? And a house full of too much stuff and credit cards that are now over full, right? Maxed to their limits because they're so desperately trying to have joy apart from God, who's the source of joy. And apart from the gospel of Jesus that produces the peace, that produces the joy. Now this may minister to some of you who are Bible geeks like me, but I think it's super interesting that here in the Holy Spirit's announcement of the birth of Jesus, written through Luke, that he makes the word savior there in verse 11, so central to the passage, to the words joy in verse 10, and the word peace in verse 14. That's not by accident. The Holy Spirit makes sure that that is the central truth between these other two spiritual realities. And the reason that he does this in the passage is to communicate clearly that peace and joy are not either of them self-existent things in my life, but they are the beautiful byproducts of receiving Jesus as my savior. And of course it's not surprising we look around and we see today what man has done in the course of 2000 years. People have held on to only two of these three major themes. They love to talk about joy, and they love to talk about peace, but they so effectively and omit and ignore that critical central theme of the Savior Jesus. The very thing that connects those other things together, in whose gospel produces those things in the life of an individual. So Christmas, you can see, has increasingly become all about joy and all about peace, but not at all about a savior. And the problem with this is that there is no joy and there is no peace apart from the savior because it's out of that salvation and it's only out of that salvation that those things flow. So joy and peace are these beautiful kind of nice hopeful concepts now in the human condition rather than them being the reality that God knows that they need to be in our lives. That reality that he wants each of us 
individually to experience of these things. That's the good news of the gospel. And I want us, believe it or not, we're finishing. I want us to notice just one more detail. One more detail from today's text that I want us really to take with us as we leave today. Notice that our angel in his initial announcement there in verse 10, he said, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Not a few people, not some people, but to all people. And you can look it up. And do you know what that word all that Luke used here means to us in this context? It means all, doesn't it? <laughs> but more specifically and more interestingly, it means the whole or every kind of. It means all in the sense of each and every part so one linguist explained it this way, that the emphasis of the total picture is then on one piece at a time and focuses on the parts making up the whole. So what he's saying here is it's all people, including every person, one person at a time. You see that? So the gospel brings this prospect of peace and this promise of joy to any and all who will simply accept it. The birth of Jesus brought these good tidings of great joy, not just to Israel, not only for the elect, not just for evangelicals, not only for Republicans, right? Not just for religious people or good people, but for the bad people for the worst people, for the shepherds, right? For the outcasts. So it's for all people collectively and for each person individually. It brought good tidings of great joy for whosoever. Right, that beautiful word whosoever as it says in the King's English, right? In the King James version of the Bible. So the good news is that Jesus offers us peace with God. He offers us the peace of God. He offers us joy of the Holy Spirit of God. And he offers those things for whosoever. And I've quoted this before from Spurgeon, right? The Prince of Preachers preached this to 19th century London. He said, mark the sinner. It says whosoever. What a big word that is whosoever. There is no standard height here. It is of any height and any size. Little sinners, big sinners, dark sinners, fair sinners, sinners double-dyed, old sinners, aggravated sinners, sinners who've committed every crime in the whole catalog. He says whosoever. So if you're here with us this morning or if you are listening in with us this morning and if you are part of the whosoever, which by the way means what? Everybody. Then this gospel and this good news and this peace and this great joy, it is for you and it's available to you. And it comes through a relationship with Jesus. And it is as easy as Jesus promised that it was back in John 3.16. 
So how do you begin that relationship with him? Again, Jesus spoke in, in what were the most famous words in all the Bible, right? The most read words in the most read verse of the most read book of the Bible, which is the most read book in all of human history, which makes these words that Jesus spoke the most read words in all of human history. And he said this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's so simple, right? For God so loved the world, that's you and that's me. He so loved us that he gave, right? That's this event that the angels have just announced, right? It is Christmas. He gave his only begotten son, that's Jesus, that whosoever, that's us again, whosoever believes in him, which simply means to trust in him, that anyone who does that should not perish but have everlasting life. So you receive the Savior into your life simply by putting your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. And people will say, well, why would God do it this way? This seems to be too simple. If you only knew the kind of person that I've been. right? I'm the shepherd to beat all shepherds. And I think I need probably to crawl on my hands and knees from here to wherever, or I need to, to do whatever. It can't be that simple for someone like me to be saved. And yet, understand, no one can add anything to the salvation that Jesus has provided for us through this gift that God has given to us. It's for everyone. There are none that are so good that they don't need to be saved and there are none that are so bad that you can't be saved. Jesus is a sinner's savior. He is the perfect match for our need and the single greatest thing that you can do for God the Father isn't to try to do some big work for him or to make some grand sacrifice to him, but the single greatest thing that you can do to honor him is to put your faith in the son that he sent into this world to die for your sins because that cannot be improved upon. And that's the good news this Christmas. And when you simply do that, Right? The greatest miracle that a person can ever experience, it will instantly occur in your life. God will come into your life by the power of his Holy Spirit and he will bring the joy and bring the peace and bring that everlasting life and provide the power and bring the hope that we each so desperately need and that God knows that we need. And you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit and you will be capable now for the first time. You will have now the capacity to have that relationship with God. And that is his gift to each and every one of us. But you've heard it said before, no gift is of any good unless we do what? Open it, right? receive it until we actually take it and make it our own. Not even this gift from God. It has to be opened, it has to be received. And again, I wanna close by reading from verse 11. This is God's invitation to you personally. 
It says in verse 11, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So do it this morning, right? And enter for the first time, not only into the true meaning of Christmas, but into the very meaning of the birth of Jesus. That single event which has now provided the world with this incomparable good news and the joy and the peace and the salvation that our world so desperately needs today, just like it desperately needed it 2,000 years ago. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and we thank you for Christmas. Lord, we thank you for this incredible, unspeakable, incomparable, gift, Lord, that you've given. Lord, we thank you that you've made it so easy for us to be reconciled to you. And Father, I do pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never made that commitment, Lord, who's never asked to be forgiven of their sins based on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, Lord, I pray that they would not wait one more moment Lord, that in the, the quiet of their hearts that your spirit would be drawing them and stirring them. If that's you this morning, there's no prayer that you have to recite. There's no words that you need to say except to admit to the Lord that you need him, that you need his forgiveness for your sins and that that comes not based on your own goodness, but it comes based upon the goodness of Jesus and upon his sinless sacrifice on the cross. And you can express that to the Lord in whatever words you want to. And as you do that, your life will be forever changed and your eternity will be changed. So Father, if there are those this morning who are struggling, I pray, Lord, that you would be stirring their hearts, Lord, Christians be praying here this morning for those who might not yet know Jesus. If that's you today and you're just still not sure, as we close and we, uh, and we worship, there'll be people up here on, the, on your right and on your left that can pray with you and that can help you to understand um, how to take this next step. And so, Father, we do pray that if there are those here, Lord, that you would draw them that they would make that commitment to you this morning, entering into the true meaning of Christmas and the true um, the meaning of the birth of Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord. We pray that you'd continue to bless our time as we worship you. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and uh, worship him, for he is worthy. Amen.